0: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Luke.
1: At this point in our study through the book of Luke, Jesus has now returned to the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, they took a short trip to the other side through the storm, and Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, and then they got to the other side. They were met by the demon-possessed man, Mr. Legion, and that short trip there to this all the way to the other side of the lake, it only resulted really in one changed life in that moment at least because everybody from the town said, get out of here. We don't want you messing with our, our pig business, so... As they sailed back to the north side of the sea, I'm sure it could very easily be discouraging for the disciples, but they don't have time to wallow because as soon as Jesus and the disciples return, they're immediately met by a crowd of people. And one from the crowd in particular comes forward and, and bows down before Jesus. And so as we see this event now that occurs, we saw the wind and the waves obey Jesus last week. This week we'll see that Jesus has the final say over death And disease. So, chapter 8 of Luke, we begin in verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. So we see here this interesting individual comes up. It says, Behold, this event occurs as Jesus comes there. The crowd was not the event. It was this man coming forward. It says he was the ruler of the synagogue. The synagogue, is a remember, it's a place where not just religious services took place. That was only used for that, maybe two to four times a week. But the synagogue was almost like a town hall. It was a meeting place when they would have to discuss city business or they'd have to make an announcement or special events would occur. It would always occur in the synagogue. So this is the guy who is in charge of directing all those affairs. So he is a, a VIP in the city. He is someone of importance, someone of authority. But he now, the reason it says behold isn't because of that, it's because of how he approaches Jesus. It says he fell down at Jesus' feet. He prostrated himself, the position of a lesser to a greater, the position of the servant before the king. He begged, it says, he besought him, he means to plead that Jesus would come into his house. Jairus is a guy who bowed to nobody in his community. So this is a great act of humility on his part. It shows how desperate he is for Jesus's help. So why is he desperate? Well, verse 42, he had one only daughter about 12 years of age and she lay a dying. The phrase there means she was in imminent danger of death. I don't know if she got injured or if it was a sudden illness or a prolonged illness, but either way, the idea is if nothing supernatural happens, she will soon be dead. I have four children. My oldest is 20 and my you know, youngest is eight, soon to be nine. I can't, still can't imagine of anything that would be more heart-wrenching than this. I have my own child be dying. Every parent fears that. I pray for my kids every single day, God, keep them safe, keep them healthy. Every parent fears that it's our worst nightmare. Well, this guy's living it. In fact, Matthew actually tells us that Jairus said to Jesus, she's even now dead. She had not died yet, but in his mind, she's gone. I left because this is, this is it. She, she is gone, even though she wasn't dead yet. There was no hope. This is a man whose last hope is for Jesus to do something, to do something supernatural, something out of the ordinary. He is as desperate as desperate can be Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been there in life? Desperate as desperate can be. There is no hope. There's no one else going to come through. Nothing else is going to happen unless the Lord does a miracle. It's interesting. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus immediately gets up to go. And I think that's so important for us to know and understand, even though Luke doesn't mention it here, because we need to realize that when we come to God with this kind of desperation, his heart is moved his heart is moved. When you come to the Lord like that, he doesn't ignore you. He's not cold to your pain or fear. You know, he's not unmoved emotionally by your coming to him in desperation. There are some who teach that we cannot move God. How can you move someone who knows everything? How can you move someone who doesn't need anything? Well, I can give you the best example. Jesus wept, right? I mean, this is a a man, God in the flesh, right? Who knew that Lazarus was going to be alive in just a few minutes, maybe less than a few minutes. He knew he was going to raise him. So he wasn't crying because he missed Lazarus. He wept because he saw all the other people weeping. He saw their pain. He saw their sorrow and it moved his heart. It touched his heart. We can indeed touch the heart of God. He is moved by our desperation. He is moved by our pain. He is not cold to it at all. Jesus immediately gets up to go, but Luke mentions, but as he went, the people thronged him. The word there means to crowd someone to the point that you can barely breathe. They smother him. It is slow going. I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been for Jairus. I imagine, though, as Jairus bows down and in front of everybody says, my daughter's dying, please come to my house. And Jesus goes, yeah, I'll come. I imagine some people were thinking, can you come to my house next, Jesus? I've got this need too. You know, they all had needs and they're just crowding around him, gathering for his attention, getting in line, trying to be next. So it was slow going. Jesus, of course, could have pushed them all away. He could have yelled at them. Don't you understand a little girl's life is on the line? But he didn't do any of those things. I want to encourage you because maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're in that place of desperation where if God doesn't come through, it's over. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your maybe it's your child. Maybe it's a health issue. You're there right now. I want to encourage you. Don't get frustrated with God because it doesn't seem like he's in a hurry. Don't get frustrated with God because it doesn't seem like he's in a hurry. There's only one time in the scripture that I can think of where God ran, and it's the story of the Parable of the Prodigal Son, right? Where of course the father there refers to our heavenly Father. He ran to meet his son when he saw him coming back, turning back to come home. And I think the Lord still runs to come greet us as soon as we turn around to come back home, because He wants us to know immediately we're forgiven. He wants us to know immediately we're accepted. He wants us to know immediately that He wants to restore us. He doesn't want us to go another minute wondering about our future in that sense with Him and our relationship with Him. But that's the only time I can find in Scripture where God was in a hurry. I find frequently in Scripture that it seems like the Lord is actually too late. It seems like he's taken his time. In fact, it seems like he's taken too much time. But that's interesting because the truth is time doesn't mean the same thing to God that it does to us, right? Time is very different, and it means something very different to God because he's not limited by time. It's not that God doesn't understand time. It's not that he doesn't understand timeliness. It's not that he is insensitive to our understanding of time and timeliness, But because he is outside of time and not limited by time, the rules do not apply to him in the same way they might apply to us. If you show up late to work, you might get fired. On the other hand, if God shows up late to something, we have to question, is he really late? Because time does not affect him the way it does us. Jesus, what's interesting, though, is even though God is not limited by time, Jesus was limited by time in his earthly ministry, right? I mean, he stepped into time. He took our flesh upon himself, became a man. So he is limited in that sense by time. Jesus could have removed that limitation anytime he wanted to. He never ceased to be God. He could have stepped outside of time again. So I think we understand, okay, why this may have delayed him. But why would the Father ever delay If he's outside of time, why would he ever delay? Why, nothing can limit him, so nothing can get in his way. So why would he delay? Well, look at Daniel chapter 10 with me real quick, because we do have examples in scripture of the Lord delaying, and here we have an interesting one. Now, give you a little bit of context Daniel is praying because the 70 years of captivity has ended. He's seeking God. He's, he's praying and fasting. The Bible says in Daniel 10 for th- three weeks, he's mourning, crying out to God for the sin of his people, repenting, praying that God would allow them to go back to their homeland. Very likely praying that he would be able to go back to his homeland. Now as an, a very old man, Daniel likely being around 90 years of age at this time. And for three weeks, nothing, nothing at all. And then all of a sudden he has a vision of an angel. And so the angel explains to him why it took three weeks to get to bring an answer. Look at verse 12 of Daniel chapter 10. Then he said unto me, the angel said to Daniel, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you did set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself, to repent, to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. The first day you started fasting and praying and I heard you, the Lord heard you immediately. And I am come for your words. You prayed and God sent me to be the answer to your prayer. So the question is, why did it take three weeks? Maybe he used I-4, maybe that's why. No, that's not what it says. He says, but... So here we have, the prayer comes forward, immediately God hears it, immediately God dispatches the angel with an answer. But for three weeks, no answer comes to Daniel. And here he says why. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. He was, someone opposed him bringing this answer to Daniel this spiritual entity. I don't know who he is. Please don't ask me for a theology of who the prince of Persia is, the kingdom of Persia. Okay. I'm not, I don't want to even dare get into that right now. But the idea was, is there was an enemy that tried to keep him from doing it so much so he wasn't having making progress that little Michael, one of the chief princes. So Michael, the archangel came to help me. That's the only way he could get past this guy and so I remained there with the kings of Persia. And again, I don't want to get into the theology of that, but the idea is there was a spiritual war going on that Daniel could not see. There was spiritual battle going on that Daniel could not see that prevented the answer from coming. Could have God certainly just wiped out the entity and Had it come, certainly he could have, and I don't understand fully why God didn't do that. But the idea here is that sometimes God dispatches an answer right away, but we seem to think he's delaying because the enemy of our soul is delaying God's servants. God's servants are not all-powerful. Angels aren't all-powerful. So sometimes the enemy of our soul, he he delays God's servants. Sometimes... And this happens more often, well, happens only with us. But sometimes God sends one of us with an answer and we're not faithful. So things take longer. I've had numerous times where people have come to me and said, Pastor, well, I'm so sorry. Six weeks ago when you preached this message on this, the Lord told me to do this. And I didn't do it. And, but here I am now. And it's like, oh, well, praise the Lord. It's an answer to prayer. But all the time we're wondering, going, Lord, what are you doing? <laughs> so the, it's not that God doesn't send the answer right away. Sometimes there's just an enemy out there. Sometimes God's servants aren't faithful. But the truth is, sometimes it's none of those things. Sometimes it's like this time, that God has a bigger plan that none of us can see. Look at verse 43. Now, as all this is going on, they're making slow movement towards this home. It says, a woman now enters into the the event. A woman having an issue of blood for 12 years, which had spent all of her living upon physicians, neither could be healed by any. She came behind him, Jesus, and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood King James says, stanched, it immediately ceased. She stopped bleeding. And Jesus said, who touched me? So he stops too, who touched me? This woman who comes in, who is she? We don't know her name. It just mentions her problem, that she had an issue of blood for 12 years. The issue of blood there, it means she had menstrual bleeding. Now, 10% of women in the world, they suffer from extended bleeding during their monthly cycle. Most causes are treatable, so we don't really hear about it very much. But this woman had experienced this nonstop, For 12 years. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, this also made her ritually unclean. Leviticus 15 talks about how if anyone has a discharge of blood, they are ritually unclean. Now, if you're ritually unclean, it means you can't be around other people because you'll make them unclean. And then you also can't worship in the tabernacle or now at this time, Jesus' day, the temple. You can't worship because you're ritually unclean. Nothing unclean can come before God. So this is a woman who's not just suffering physically, she's suffering spiritually. She's not allowed to be around anybody. She's got to be outside the city and she cannot go and worship the Lord. So she's barred from being with other people and barred from being within the presence of the Lord. And so as you imagine, this made her very desperate. So she had spent all her living. Literally, I means she had spent lavishly. She had sought the best doctors, the most expensive doctors to help her out. But none of them had been able to help her. And now she had nothing left, no money left. And no one had been able to cure her problem. This is going to be the rest of her life. Barred from people and barred from the Lord. In the span of three verses, we have met two people to whom Jesus is literally their last hope. There's no other hope for her. There's no other hope for Jairus unless Jesus comes through. Time has run out. Jesus, thankfully, is on the way to help Jairus. But this woman doesn't have the hope that she can walk up to Jesus and go, hey, can you help me too? Why? Because she's unclean. She can't get near him. But she does. She sneaks in and decides to come unawares. Look at verse 44. So she came behind him and touched the border of his garment. The border would be the tassel. And the Jews, they would wear the vests, you know, with the four tassels. They would have two in the front, two in the back in Jesus' day. That's how they did it in his day. Now, this is not something they just made up. This is something that comes all the way back from Numbers chapter 15, where God commanded the children of Israel to wear These tassels, not for, but just to wear tassels. And the whole purpose of them, it says in verse 39 of Numbers 15, and it shall be unto you for a tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And so that you will not seek after your own heart and your own eyes after which you used to go a whoring, but that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto the Lord your God. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. God we have a relationship I have this relationship with you and so because of that I love you and you love me and so you you know this will be your reminder so that when you you wake up in the morning you get out in the fields and you're like where is my son (laughs) and then you see him come walking out late to the field and instead of blasting him you look down you see the tassel blowing in the wind you go all right Lord I gotta love my enemy so I have to love my son too you know and you you know and then you you deal with it but you deal with it the correct way right they would serve as a reminder. I am a, a, ch- a child of Israel. I have been purchased and redeemed from Egypt by him. And so I, my life is his. I want to obey him. It was to serve as a reminder to be obedient to the Lord. So the Jews, they would wear these vests over their outer clothes. When we were in Israel, they, we saw, saw them you know, out there with their tassels, the Orthodox ones. And they'd have two tassels in the front, two tassels in the back. They had the number of the tassels. Every, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet also has a numerical value. So they had enough tassels there where it had all, for all the commandments of God. And if you added it up, The numbers actually spelled out Jehovah is one. That's very interesting. Jesus is wearing a vest that says Jehovah is one because he's Jehovah, right? of the rabbis or the Jews would, would think that, but Jesus is wearing one. Why is that interesting? Well, because in the ancient Near East, the corner of a person's garment represented your identity. It was who you were and what you stood for. Jehovah is one. It's who he is. It's who he is. What's interesting though also is that same Hebrew word for tassel can be translated wings. And so we find a lot of verses in the Old Testament that use the word wings. It's that same word for tassel. So for example, the phrase, hide me under the prayer, hide me under the shadow of your wings. That prayer is a prayer for God to identify with the person's struggles and to protect them. Take your identity and put it over mine. My identity is bad right now. So take your identity and cover me with it. You who are perfection, you who do all things well, you who are all powerful. Lord, I, I am not that and I can't tackle where I'm at right now. Place that over me. One of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, very last book of the Old Testament, that talk about the tassels as wings is Malachi 4, verse 2. And it's a Messianic verse. It says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And so there was the belief that if you grabbed hold of the tassel of the Messiah, that you would be healed. A superstitious idea. Well, this is her last hope. And she's thinking... I'm going to grab that tassel. I can't come to him. I can't ask him because when I tell him what my problem is, everyone will know I'm unclean. They'll run me off. So whether she was thinking of the prophecy of the Messiah, Malachi 4.2, or she's just desperate and going to grab hold of a tassel, either way, that's what she's going to do. Mark tells us her plan was to grab hold of that tassel and then leave without anybody knowing why she did it. Because again, if she touches anybody, and she is. Remember, they're all pressed close. He can barely breathe. There's so many people around him. She's got to push those people away. She's got to touch them to get to his tassel. She's touching people and making them unclean. So if the crowd knew who she was, they would not let her get to Jesus. They would send her away. But because she's convinced this is her last chance, she pushes her way to Jesus. She grabs one of the tassels on the back of his vest. And when she does, her life is forever changed. It says immediately, her issue of blood stopped. I don't know if she let go of the tassel and she stopped. I don't know. I don't know what happened, but I do know what Jesus did because he stopped and said, who touched me? Who touched me? Jesus, certainly there are numerous times where he would ask questions already knowing the answer. It's not why he asked the question. God does that with us frequently. The Lord in the garden, the very beginning after Adam and Eve sinned, he came and Adam and Eve hid, right? And he says, Adam, where are you? trust me, God isn't asking because he doesn't know where they are, <laughs> right? He's giving Adam a chance to come forward. He's giving Adam a chance to confess, to make things right, you know, not to cover up his sin. God, he asks questions sometimes. So it's possible Jesus did know who she was, and, and he's, he wants her to come forward. He wants to minister to her further, to trust him with more than her health. Maybe he didn't know, but he says, who touched me? And so everybody denies it, you know, and the disciples, they're probably running interference. Was it you? No, I didn't touch him. You, I didn't touch him. And so everybody's dead, oh, I didn't touch him. And so finally the disciples are thinking, Jesus, who touched you? Everybody touched you. <laughs> There's you know dozens, maybe even hundreds of people that have touched you, you know, as we've been walking at Jairus' house. What kind of question is that? So Jesus, he clarifies the question. He says in verse 46, somebody has touched me. Not just touch me, but touch me. For I perceive that, the King James says virtue. It's just the word dunamis, it means power. I perceive that power has gone out of me. Power, that word dunamis, it refers to one's inherent ability. I don't have the inherent ability to heal people. I could pray for someone and they might be healed that God might put his power through me, but I don't have that inherent ability. So this dunamis, this is God's inherent ability. So it's used to refer to mighty acts, mighty works. He says, a miracle has come out of me. He says, a miracle, mighty work has been done from me. I know it. So he says, we need to stop. We need to deal with this. Now, when Jesus says this, the woman knew she was busted. When I'm playing hide and seek with my little guys, don't do it with the older ones anymore. But if we're doing something like that, or we're running around the house and they're hiding from me, and when I find them, they're first uh, and they run right. You will go I'm busted, Dad found me. You know, he's gonna turn me into a nude or something. And they run. Our natural reaction when we've been busted is to cover up somehow, to hide, to lie our way out of it, to make an explanation, to run. But she doesn't do any of those things. Look at verse 47. And when the woman saw she was not hid, she couldn't conceal it. She came trembling, shaking from fear and awe. She is terrified. Why would she be terrified? Because it's not just that she was touching other people and making them unclean. She touched Jesus. She made him ritually unclean. If this man could heal her, then he was definitely from God. So what would he do to her for violating her unclean status and making him unclean? What would all the people do when they found out? She is probably now in far more danger than she ever was from her d- sickness. Because if the people find out, they might kill her. So she is shaking. And yet, even though she's shaking, it says she falls down before him. The same position that Jairus put himself in. She is humbling herself and seeking mercy. Please begging for Mercy. And then she declares unto him in front of everybody, all the people, before all the people, for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Now, that's interesting because she could have just stopped right there and said, I touched you and then hope maybe he didn't ask too far. But she gives the whole story in front of everybody. Can I tell you that took more faith than her faith to be healed? Because she had to trust Jesus wouldn't cast her out. He wouldn't give her over to the mob, that he wouldn't harm her. She had to trust that Jesus was good, kind, and gracious. Do you believe that Jesus won't cast you out when you lay your whole story before him? He says, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But do you believe that? I think sometimes we look at our lives, we think, I can't talk to the Lord about this. This is bad. When you come to him and you say, Lord, this is my story. It's not who I wanna be. I wanna wanna be healed. I wanna change. I wanna touch the hem of that garment. You know, I, I wanna be different. The Lord won't cast you out. Do you trust that he's good and kind and gracious? because he is. He is. Look at what he says. And Jesus said to her, daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Now, daughter, it's a term of both affection and dignity. We really don't have a word like that today. Maybe madam, maybe. It's more formal than affectionate. Maybe lady, that's also a little bit more formal than affectionate. But I mean, how many of us use those words today? We don't usually use those words. But the word Jesus uses here is both affectionate and both dignified. This is a woman who didn't have any affection for 12 years at least and certainly did not feel dignified. He says, daughter, be of good comfort. I say it like that because it's not be of good comfort. It's, it's actually a command, and it doesn't mean to feel better. It means you must have courage. You know, you're shaking. Don't be shaking. You don't have any reason to shake right now. You've done nothing wrong. Be of good comfort. Pl- pluck up, young lady. Pluck up, daughter. Daughter rabbis back then they would remind people of a section of scripture by quoting the first line of that scripture and there aren't too many verses that start off by addressing the congregation as daughter or addressing the the listeners as daughter there's only a few verses maybe that would stick out as he said that called her daughter but one i find very interesting back in zephaniah chapter 3 zephaniah 3 we'll just read verses 14 through 17 Now, the context of Zephaniah 3 is Judah is in sin and God is pronouncing judgment, sending the prophet Zephaniah to tell him, you know, you're going to be judged. I'm gonna judge the nations around you. I'm calling them to repentance, even though knowing they won't repent. But at the very end, he gives Zephaniah and thus through Zephaniah to the people, a promise of restoration. And so he says at the very end, these beautiful verses. Sing, verse 14, Zephaniah 3. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil, disaster, bad times anymore. Israel did not have a king right now for where this woman's at. There was no king in Israel at that time. But the king, the Lord, was right in front of her, right in front of her. And he was removing all disaster from her. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear thou not, don't be afraid. Let not your hands be slack. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty and he will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. She heard him call her daughter. I imagine this verse probably came to mind that the Lord himself was right there in front of her. She didn't have to be discouraged or afraid or worried. She should pluck up because her faith had made her whole.
0: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn,